Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is Claire Warner, co-founder of the non-alcoholics aperitif brand, Acorn. With its sister firm, Seedlip, Acorn is giving non-drinkers a seat at the bar and a healthier alternative. Claire's love of nature-inspired Acorn's recipe with a focus on digestive health and 17th century European distillation. She's taken the essence of the great spirits and cocktails and transformed them into wellness and sophistication. So no hangovers for this entrepreneur with a passion for purpose and changing the game. Claire, welcome to Changemakers. I hear Negroni is the is the high art, peak of achievement for you in terms of your work with, with the new brand. Tell us more. The Negroni is such an iconic cocktail and one of my favourites, one of Ben Branson's favourite drinks. And when Ben created Seedlip, it was this sort of unicorn cocktail that he was determined to master with Seedlip. But the drink took, I don't know, like two days of steeping all sorts of different botanicals and ingredients. Many, many hands were needed to make, you know, this sort of great non-alc drink that he introduced to the bartending community a few years ago, World's 50 Best, and, and they were blown away. But I have to be honest, you know, when we introduced Acorn, we took that version of the drink to a whole new level. And I think it, it really does stand shoulder to shoulder with the classic, iconic, alcoholic Negroni. You know, it's bitter, it's bold, it's got depth, complexity, all the things that you expect from that drink, but, you know, just without the alcohol. And, and, you, can, and you can remember that you had one. I mean, I suppose that's the, <laughs> that's the other thing. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. We'll, we'll get on to the business in a minute, but but it is the thing that during the lockdown, that you know, whenever you go on Instagram or or whatever, I mean, the Negroni does seem to have captured the imagination around the world of the kind of lockdown tipple of choice. What what is that? Is it sort of thoughts of the Mediterranean? Is it thoughts of holiday? What what do you think is is sort of driving it? It's taken me by surprise, I have to be honest, you know, maybe it's the simplicity of it, maybe that it's so iconic, and yet so simple, you know, equal parts, three ingredients that, you know, we we can all find quite simply in in our supermarkets. So I, I don't know what it is, you know, maybe we're really, we were really missing those, you know, luxurious experiences of being in cocktail bars, but also that that is a drink that you can enjoy at home with not very much equipment, with not very much know-how, you know, you know, actors making them during lockdown, bartenders being in uproar because I think this actor shook his Negroni. So they all of a sudden became quite zeitgeisty. <laughs> oh, yes. Don't shake them, stir <laughs> exactly. them. No, that's right. That's... So we all had an opinion <laughs> about that drinks. So as a consequence, the Negroni has also benefited from the spotlight, I think. First of all, I suppose we could be a whole, we could be a whole episode on the Negroni, but maybe that's a, for a, another time. But but you were at the helm of Acorn and, and part of the Seedlip journey. I mean, they're, they're both extraordinary brands that I think capture something of the mood at the, of the moment where there's something about well-being, the need to be together, not though to lose some of those sort of, I, I guess, wonderful sort of cocktails of, of the past. Tell us a little bit more about the business before we go into the need that you're fulfilling and a little bit of that backstory. Well, I joined Seedlip two years into Seedlip's journey. So I joined Seedlip, uh, well, Ben and I co-founded Acorn three years ago. So by that point, Seedlip had already been around and really started to change the way the world drinks. So, so frame Seedlip for us. So for those that are saying, what is Seedlip? Um, so, just a quick, um, a quick one-liner. World's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. 
And for people who love spirits, white spirits in particular, it really does behave in a very similar way to your white spirit. So great in cocktails, great in simple serves, and was the pioneer of the non-alcoholic movement. Mm. And, and it is, it's, it's a wonderful drink and, and in, in my fridge at the moment. I mean, but you've taken the story on with Acorn. So, so let's introduce Acorn as, as a... Uh... An idea. Yeah, so I joined Ben, as I say, three years ago. And what, what I was very interested in was creating a range of non-alcoholic products that would work with food, that would enable us to be social with food. And the the sort of style of drink that really lends itself to food and sociability is, of course, aperitivo and aperitifs. They are already lower in alcohol. And so the alcohol within them is not the driving you know aspect of those, those styles of drinks. It's much more about flavor being botanically rich and to be you know easily paired with simple dishes and for me that was a really rich opportunity at the time we were also very interested in you know bars bartenders the consumer was also a little bit interested in vermouth and aperitif in general and so it was a great opportunity for us to really lean into bitter bold complex ingredients that don't require alcohol in order for them to be complex and multifaceted and you've got a real insider's journey into this. I mean, you were the head of spirit creation and mixology at the LVMH brand Belvedere and something, you know, I've, I've shared a little part of your journey and you were a bartender. I was a bartender. I used to do cocktails at Simpsons in the Strand oh, in wow. London and I was, was taught by the most fantastic Austrian master sort of cocktail bartender. I remember his Austrian guy called Igor. And I do wonder what he would make of this change because, you know, he was your purist. And I mean, and would literally look look appalled at the way I would make customer cocktails. Tell us a little bit about your experience in, in terms of that, your route into what you've ultimately gone on to do with Seedlip and Acorn. I think a lot of people in our industry often talk about falling into it. I studied law. I was on track to be a a lawyer but I, I wanted to be a barrister and quickly realized you know first year of my university studies that that actually that as a career path wasn't what was inspiring to me and that I was very social and I was quite creative and I wanted to be with lots of people and so while I was at uni I working in bars there wasn't really a craft of bartending I was in Nottingham so there was the first bartender the first cocktail bar in Nottingham I went to work in and sort of baptism of fire bar manager manager was fired, I stepped up and said, let me learn about cocktails as a way to kind of, you know, make make these crazy drinks and fell in love with that profession, which is so creative. I, I totally, I totally agree. So I've worked in one of the famous bars, but I've worked in pubs and clubs during my university years. And I think when you've had that experience, it can be quite formative in terms of how you approach the rest of your life. How, how do you think it impacted the way you see the world? I think being in a in a customer facing role I quickly understood that whatever I liked about drinks didn't matter because if the customer didn't want to drink it then they're not going to buy it so you start to kind of think about other people in a very in a very different way I fell in love with the stories of the brands that that were on the back bar you know all of those bottles that you see all carry such heritage and great stories and I was fascinated by this whole brave new world effectively that I hadn't really experienced and my parents are teetotal so I didn't grow up involved with alcohol in any way and so it was it was a very romantic, exotic, mysterious world and enabled me to be creative in a way that I, you know, didn't really think that 
I wanted to be, you know, it opened up a whole new sort of area of my life in terms of creativity, you know, wanting to be working with people. So yeah, it was very formative for me. But but I mean, I suppose at the heart of this is this kind of slightly schizophrenic relationship that we have with alcohol. And, you know, before we get into the trend that you're working with and shaping, I mean, it's funny when you look at the quotes on on alcohol, I like quotes in interviews, and it's it's huge level sources from you know Hemingway to Sinatra to Jar Jar Gabor. I mean, they're all in there. You know, I before E except in Budweiser. I mean, all of these kind of things. And and then actually, I thought the one I was going to throw to you was that in terms of trying to sort of like you know frame alcohol was you know from the unlikely source, but I always think the highly credible source of, of Homer Simpson from The Simpsons, and he said that here's to alcohol the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. I mean, doesn't that sort of capture this kind of like this sort of really odd relationship with a product that we know, you know, has the potential to be very, very bad for us, yet is consumed so so widely. I mean, is the future that we've just got to kick the habit, do you think? I don't know if we're there yet. And and honestly, I do think that there are positive aspects to to alcohol that is the reason why it's so popular. And that goes way back into our primal history in that alcohol has been credited with being the humanity's success. We are social. We are intensely social as a species. And alcohol triggers the endorphin system, which enables us to bond rapidly. And so that's why we think of it as this social lubricant. And that, I think, explains one of the reasons why I was so interested to take what I am passionate about, which is bringing people together to, you know, maintain our strong social bonds. But how can we do that without the alcohol? And what is the role that alcohol plays in our social lives? And what should therefore the role of non-alc be? And, and I suppose the negative side of alcohol and, and the road to alcoholism and the social problems that come from it are well narrated and and indeed, you know, pose so many sort of difficult problems for families and others. But I suppose in terms of where you are going with Acorn and where Seedlip started that journey is this idea that, well, you can have that social life, that social situation, but you can feel well at the same time, I presume. I mean, is, is that... Is that a part of the the pitch in terms of, the, I, I guess, this change in our relationship with alcohol and spirits, but not necessarily wanting to change our relationship with the sentiments of what they deliver? Absolutely. You know, the the cultural behavioural drivers were in place before Seedlip was introduced, you know, five or six years ago. We were becoming more interested in our health and well-being, wanting to protect our health longevity, but still maintain our social bonds. We became becoming more aware of, you know, our lives being played out on social media. So wanting to, you know, exert a little bit more control over, over our public selves. And so, you know, a lot of these drivers were in place and Seedlip really tapped into that desire for people to want to drink. You know, what do I drink when I'm when I'm not drinking? So that was already in place you know Seedlip neatly articulated that and I think that speaks to the fact that we still want to socialize we still want to feel included we still want to have those elevated experiences but sometimes for whatever reason alcohol doesn't necessarily need to play a role those areas where Seedlip and Acorn play into are you know that they are they are about health and wellness all the things that we're very interested in, in right now probably more so perhaps coming out of the pandemic but yet the desire to be social and to see our friends and families and to have great experiences over food, they're not going to change, I don't think. 
we'll talk about the pandemic in a moment, but I mean, in terms of the, the nature of the change, it was already happening before the pandemic. And I wonder if you were to look at it. I mean, I, I remember the, you know, the earliest days of things like zero percent beers and, you know, not feeling particularly well after I'd drunk them, you know, and, and being quite quite a doubter into the whole idea that, that non-alcoholic drinks were going to sort of fulfill an, an essential human need. And I was very, very wrong on that because you can see exactly the growth and, and, and actually how it has grown in parallel with this greater interest in well-being. If you were to look back though and say that was the moment it happened, that was the change that we saw, is, is it as easy as that? Can you see a trigger moment in terms of where this market was really born? It's really difficult to say, you know, perhaps you know, if, looking back to 2008, you know, when we had a, a huge economic recession and we really started to consume nostalgic flavours, so whipped cream and you know, quite childish flavours, actually, as a way to perhaps bring a sense of comfort. And then maybe out of that, we started... I think you've been to... in my fridge, Claire. That's... <laughs> <laughs> who's got those? You know, who's buying those, those, those types of products? But they were very, very popular and they were bringing a sense of comfort and nostalgia. And then we started to actually be become more aware of of how much sugar we were consuming. And do you remember a few years ago in the media, maybe, I don't know, eight years ago or so, we were, we were very, very concerned about sugar levels and then the sugar tax came into effect. And, and all of this, I think, is, is this sort of growing awareness of our health, what we consume, the impact of what we consume on our bodies and on the planet as well. All of this is also, you know, growing awareness. And perhaps this, this is down to the internet even, you know, this ability for us to kind of be more informed more educated, make better choices has meant that we do want to, you know, all of us live longer, happier, healthier lives. And this has become a, a trend that's now moved from being niche into more mainstream. You know, look at the rise of veganism, for instance, uh, over the last two to three years. All of these things are, are tapping into our desire, I think, to live long, happy, healthy lives. It's interesting because I interviewed Charles Rolls of the Fever Tree founder, and, and he was talking about the importance of trends. And he tells a fascinating story about how the rise of real interest in the Moscow Mule was a, a real Eastern seaboard phenomena in the States, which led to them selling huge amounts of mixes. And they weren't quite sure why it was happening at the beginning. But a lot of it seems to be a about the effect of things like TV, role modeling, the kind of, you know, if you look at those kind of early episodes of Suits, I mean, everybody seems to have got about half a bottle of whiskey in a glass. There are certain ways of treating the medium and the message. Do you get a sense that's now what we're seeing the change in, in terms of, as you say, so many influencers on social media, so many people that actually say, look, you don't need to kill yourself to have a good time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've moved away, I think, our attention from Facebook into a very... Uh, a much more visual social media medium, which is Instagram, which is, you know, very much about appearance and lifestyle and those influencers living that sort of very holistic, healthy, moderate lifestyle, which is appealing. And it's also the cocktail seems to have become this this great social media sensation with Stanley Tucci and others that are the sort of the skill, the, the artisan craft of actually putting spirits together. I mean, even when, as you say, the Negroni is, is not a tough one to make, but it does seem to become you know back to where we started this kind of you know zeitgeist moment that cocktails seem to have really captured 
our mood during the, the pandemic. And I suppose lessons of the pandemic for you, that, that might well be one. What, what, have been, what have been the others that you've, you've spotted during you know, building a business in lockdown and during a, a global um, challenge like COVID? Acorn is two years old in May, which means approximately half of that brand's, of, of, of brand's life has been spent under the cloud of COVID. And so, but what we have seen is a consumer that's very interested in moderating their alcohol consumption and then looking for products that are complex and delicious that they can use uh, to make simple drinks at home. So while the Negroni is the Negroni and the Nogroni was very popular, easy to make drinks such as the Spritz have become increasingly popular. We've seen the aperitif category grow by 44% over the last year. Consumers making no and low cocktails at home grown by 23% over the last year. I think before the pandemic, at-home cocktail making wouldn't have really played into uh, many of our consumers' entertainment options. But we've used cocktail making and learning about cocktails as a new form of home entertainment. And that's, that's exciting because it means we're more confident to make those drinks at home moving forward. And there's so much, you know, there's so much sort of, I guess, symbolism and so much, you know, so many wonderful like instruments and things you can use from the cocktail shaker to how you stir things to, and I suppose this gives a new take on that sort of hobby or, or, or skill set. I wonder though, in terms of, you know, as we approach a a world that hopefully starts to move into a post-pandemic, you know, sort of era. There seem to be two schools of thoughts on that. One is that we're going to have this great reset and, you know, we will reimagine the future, we'll become healthier as a result. And then there's another side of this, which goes, don't believe it. This will be, you know, we'll be back to where we were. A great deal of pessimism about many of the social problems. When, when you look at this crossroads moment that, that we're careering towards, which is the kind of, right, we've been through something big. What have we learned about ourselves as, as a part of it? Where do you see it going in terms of, I, I suppose, the well-being and the social well-being agenda? Oh, to have a crystal ball. I would hope that we do maintain some of the healthier habits that we've learned during lockdown down and that we do place more emphasis on our relationships and the time spent with our friends and family that who we've not seen over the last 12 months or so before the pandemic we were really living quite disconnected lives and our relationships uh, social relationships were suffering as a consequence perhaps who knows after we get out of lockdown we'll, we'll really value those at that time well spent but there is like you say another school of th- thought that that suggests we'll snap straight back into you know how we lived our lives before pandemic before the pandemic and human beings don't really like a lot of change and would you know that's a lot of the what, what we're seeing in the media is like when can we get back to normal whether or not that's the old normal or the new normal I think remains to be seen but I think you know looking ahead and thinking about the drivers that were in place before the pandemic that this desire to be healthy more moderate perhaps has only been accelerated or more concentrated during the pandemic and hopefully now the consumer is more aware of the options that are available to them some of those habits particularly relating to how we drink at home will hopefully stick. You talked about our relationship with, with change there. And of course, when you look at your own story, by the way, which I see many parallels. I mean, I'm just a very quick ticks. I mean, I was thinking about becoming a lawyer. I didn't study law. That was seen off during a sort of brief side hustle career as, as a bartender. And and I finished up as an entrepreneur. And so have you. And But along the way, obviously, you worked for 
one of the great luxury houses in LVMH. I'm just still thinking about you've taken the path less traveled, I, I guess. I mean, in terms of actually thinking again during your journey, how's your relationship with change evolved? What have you learned about yourself on your own path? Gosh, that's a that's a huge question. You know, I would have said three well, years do, ago. Do you like it? Do you, well, do you like the changes you brought? I I do think that change is important. I still have an uncomfortable relationship with change. You know, Ben used to joke at the beginning of our journey with Acorn together that I needed to be comfortable in the uncomfortable, and that essentially is what change represents. You know, breaking out of that you know your your comfort zone is uncomfortable, and I think I I, I am getting better with you know creating disruption and and being uncomfortable in the in the uncomfortable but throughout my time at Hennessy as a very small brand within a very large luxury portfolio it was important that at Belvedere we constantly wanted to change the perception of what many people thought about vodka constantly changing perceptions I think I'm comfortable with you know constantly challenging and disrupting and making people think slightly differently about their common perceptions about I'm happy to change those perceptions that change I'm I'm comfortable with absolutely. I mean, I'm so tempted to go off on a complete tangent because because I'm, <laughs> what I feel is that when I was when I was in you know the bartending game, kind of like vodka was the great aristocrat of the spirits, and you know gin was the sort of thing that was like dusted off every <laughs> every so often. And, and then of course you know we've got the huge rise of this called like, like you know gin industry, which is you know phenomenal and actually something that does show so much diversity across the UK, but. I'm not going to ask you about that because I think <laughs> another time, <laughs> another time, because you are also very vocal um, about your love of nature and its influence on the brand. And 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 I, I read something that you said that nature was therapy. Nature helped me offset my heavy workload. I I'd love you to sort of bring a bit more of that to life because because that natural part of acorn it's it's looked back into mixology and you know the 17th century and the nate i mean i feel that's that's so much part of its of its magical promise to to the market yeah i mean look another thing perhaps post lockdown we might look back on more fondly is the time that we've been forced to spend with nature and for me personally i had to connect more deeply with nature and wellness is a way to balance what i had was a quite a challenging heavy workload with belvedere i traveled 80% of the year i spent more time probably up in the air than down on the ground and i effectively sort of burnt myself out and I discovered nature accidentally because I picked up running as a way to kind of moderate my stress and then found that I preferred running in nature than I did on a treadmill, which I'm sure everybody would recognize. And so that feeling started me on a personal discovery in terms of why do I like, why do I like this stuff? What is it doing to me? And uncovered so much research that all of it is captured beautifully in uh, Lucy Jones' book, uh, Losing Eden. Just how powerful and restorative are exposure to nature can be and that actually brought me to meeting Ben Branson because I wanted to bring more of that naturalness into what we were doing at Belvedere. Ben was working on the creative side with an agency. He came to talk to me about how to bring nature into the Belvedere work. We bonded over a amazing book about biomimicry. I went off on my nature journey and started to bring more of that stuff into Belvedere. He went on to create Seedlip. One of us changed the world. I just made more vodka. And then when we came back to, you know, talking about what potentially we could do together, nature is is what links our, our mutual love. And it seemed it seemed natural to put nature at the heart of what we do. 
And and it really comes through that, I think, because, you know, when, when I think back to the early days of, you know, I mentioned the kind of 0% beers is that quite, quite a lot of it felt like a, almost like a chemical process where it was the kind of like, almost you finish up with the worst of all worlds, something that didn't particularly taste very nice. It tasted quite manufactured. And, and, and there you've got this, you know, if you do like a drink, you buy into a lot of the mythology about how things like, as you say, the mixers and the bitters and all those things came about in terms of the, the whole kind of Italian background on some of that and, and the idea about what happens when you bring herbs and you bring various things together. And of course, I think that is something that you are communicating in a very compelling way about about this next step, perhaps to finish then in terms of the, the kind of the natural world and, and, and where you hope to go both with the business, but I suppose in your own activism around this message. And I just thought a final word about how how positively or otherwise you feel about it. About nature, about bringing nature into what we do. Yeah, sure. And, and actually how it all can, and how it will continue to impact your business. Look, without, without nature, we have no business. We are a business that is, you know, we, Ben talks often about us being a nature company that makes drinks. And I think that's true for Acorn as well. We are called Acorn. We put acorns into our range of aperitifs as a unique way of adding bitterness. So it's very, very central to what we do. We utilize the beauty, the power of nature in order to build deep, complex, multifaceted aperitifs. Alcohol doesn't even really come into it. You know, that's the least exciting or interesting thing about my range of aperitifs, frankly. It's this richness of this botanical richness, this understanding of all of the fantastic ingredients that we have at our disposal today that can enable us to really embrace nature in what we eat and drink more more closely. So it's super important to what we do. But the future, I suppose, might also be impacted by the past because I mean one of the things I picked up on my reading was was your interest in 17th century European distillation which I I would imagine is a fairly niche subject if you were going on mastermind it's probably a, a really good one to do uh, to get John Humphreys on but I mean in terms of that kind of uh, that kind of that past artisans relationship with the whole process what, what did you take out of it and what, what would it be your you know what, what, what does it teach you about the future it teaches me to really honor the ingredients that we have at our disposal you know a lot of those 17th 17th, 16th century manuscripts are talking about ingredients that are super local. One of the sort of appeal, early appeals of aperitif is that you could taste an area as opposed to it being, you know, a generic flavor. You could pick the provenance and taste the provenance of that ingredient, which I find so fascinating. So for me, it teaches me to be very respectful about choosing local ingredients over ingredients that need to travel thousands of miles. For that reason, we use British acorns, even though they're very difficult to source. We use a lot of British ingredients where we can. And those ingredients that do travel, we try to use less of them or we source them sensitively. So I think it it teaches me to really have a respect for what is locally available to us, like even hyper locally. And I know that bartenders all over the world have been doing this for, for many years. But I think from a sort of more commercial perspective, we could do we could do a lot to to think local when we're thinking about what types of ingredients to use in our products. Oh, Claire, if we were in a pub, it would now be the famous words of time, please. I mean, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our allotted space for this this edition of the show. But I mean, what a what a fascinating story! Thanks so much for sharing. I guess the rise of Acorn, the rise of Seedlip, this whole sort of new chapter in our relationship with brilliant drinks for the future. So. Thanks to my guest, Claire Warner, the entrepreneur shaking and stirring up the drinks industry. And do join me next time on Changemakers.